0: Our guest today has won two majors, 14 career titles, was ranked in the top 20 for six years, uh, made quarterfinal the better of all majors, was part of the original golden era of tennis, and uh, competed toe-to-toe with the likes of Johnny Mac, Jimmy Connors, Ivan Lendl, Mats Villander, and Boris Becker, and many more. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Johan Krieg. So, Johan, uh, thanks for taking time out to join us at Tennis with an Accent. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. Yeah, I mean, uh, the first question is just uh, because we have, I'm sure, uh, also some young uh, listening base and, you know, you are a legend of the game. You won two Australian Open. Uh, just share with our audience, how did this tennis journey start with you back in South Africa? Oh,
1: well, my wife, if she was here, she goes, You asked him the wrong question. You'll be here till 10 o'clock tonight. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, uh, you know, I grew up on a sugar plantation uh, on the Indian Ocean, not far from uh, Durban. And uh, funny enough, uh, fantastic Indian food in Durban because we have a large Indian population. So um, I'm a big fan of uh, Indian cuisine. So, I grew up on a farm and my uh, you know, my parents played a little bit of tennis and my dad was a great athlete my mom was pretty active and we grew up on a farm and we had our you know typical life on a farm and uh I grew up in a very small town that only had like two tennis courts at the time and so it was just the love of the game I started when I was 4 years old my parents introduced me to tennis they would you know just normal club players and and then uh, when I was around uh, 10 10 years old I was pretty good and my grandparents took me to a tournament, and I won it. And we lived in a caravan park, and we had a collapsible caravan tent in a place called Nell Sprite, which is actually where Cliff Dreisler is from. And uh, I won my first tournament that I ever played. And uh, got a big trophy, and I thought that was pretty cool. And so sort of the bug started at a very young age, and then I got discovered, and I took me uh, – I went to Pretoria. My parents uh, got me into a fantastic high school, and that was very competitive in sports and, and academics. It's kind of like uh, going to Chote or uh, – exeter or something like that and uh, so i was a i was a good student but i was much more uh, athletic minded and uh, i had the wanderlust i always wanted to see what's you know uh, on the other side of the planet and so that was a good combination and i ended up uh, my coach in south africa emigrated to europe when i was 15 and i was still in high school and i didn't see him for two years and his name is ian cunningham and he went to austria and i followed him years later, I was 17 years old when I went to Europe. It was just a a sheer luck that I ended up in Europe and I played a lot on red clay for about three years. In 1978, I came to the U.S. and I played my satellite tour in Florida. And uh, I got my butt beat so badly in the first three weeks, I told my dad that he might have to make some room. I'm going to come back and farm. Uh, I stuck it out and made a bit of money to keep going through the spring and the summer. And by the summer uh, U.S. Open in 1978 was the first year they had it at uh, Flushing Meadows, and they transitioned from Forest Hills. I qualified and I got all the way to the quarterfinals, and uh, I was discovered. And that's uh, that was that's uh, that's when it all started for me.
2: That's that's a wonderful story. Um, so you grew up during the apartheid. Uh, <clears throat> was it was it a challenge for you to uh, participate in international tournaments coming out of South Africa?
1: Yes and no. They were um, obviously there were some. You know, when I I, I I went to boarding school, and when you're in a boarding school situation, you're not free to roam the streets. You know, you are kind of solid into this uh, schoolwork and everything. So I I really didn't know much about the political craziness that was going on outside of our mainstream uh, South African mindset. So. It was only when I arrived in Austria that I realized that people hate me because where I'm from, and I'm like, how can you dislike me when you don't know me? You know, so so that was the beginning of understanding the world of politics, which is so crazy. And as we see today, it's even crazier, perhaps. But um, I just uh, it was tough sometimes uh, when apartheid was at the height of its, uh, uh, I would say, at the height of anti political issues for South African athletes. I was one of them. It was a lightning rod for a lot of people, and I had death threats not only from my my own country because I became a U.S. citizen in 82, but I also got death threats from people here. So it was kind of a crazy situation, Uh, like damned if you do and damned if you don't. But uh, I stuck it out, and I always went back to South Africa. I have a lot of friends and family there and uh, played the tournament. Uh, What most people don't realize is that the South African Open back in the 70s and 60s and even up to the 80s was the fifth oldest tournament after the Grand Slam tournament. And it was a very important tournament back in the day with the Rod Lavers of the world and the Rosewells and those Aussies and some of the older Americans. And, uh, yeah, so um, the political things, uh, unfortunately, fell right into that 15-year slot where we were not allowed to play Davis Cup. We're not allowed to enter any international competitions. So uh, it was uh, not really tough, but it was kind of sad that I never played Davis Cup because I would have loved to play with Kevin Curran or some of the other guys.
2: Yeah, it's interesting you bring up Davis Cup because, uh, obviously, we're from India, and uh, the Indias only made the final a couple of times, and one time was in 1974.
1: Exactly. South Africa got the walk-over.
2: Yes, yes. So, um, you know, I I think after that it was a difficult period for about four or five years for for anyone from South Africa to, to get into the mainstream. It seemed that way. Exactly.
1: Exactly. But I have an even funnier story. So 1974, I was in high school. And uh, I remember that specific time because it was such an exciting time for South Africa to get to Davis Cup finals. And then, you know, obviously uh, India (laughs) didn't come. So it was an automatic walkover. But, you know, nobody wants to win like that. But uh, anyway, I I became one of the top Americans because I became a U.S. citizen in 82. I was married at the time to an American gal. And... uh, I was uh, number seven in the world and I was the third or fourth best American and after McEnroe and Connors. And so um, Arthur Ashe called me one time, uh, you know, I didn't really know Arthur, but I played against him maybe once or twice uh, towards the end of his career. And I only knew him from the tour, but not really well. And so obviously he became Davis Cup captain at that time. And, uh, you know, Connors and McEnroe were the top guys and, he asked me if I am ready to play Davis Cup. And I was very excited because it was such an honor. I mean, I couldn't believe that I have made it to, from a farm boy in South Africa to become a Davis Cup player for the U.S. And uh, I, uh, I told him I was very, very, very flattered and I would be honored to play and I, I would be ready if he calls me. And the call to this day never came through. <laughs> so, so I think something happened between him and... Uh, I'm not going to name names, but I have a very good inkling who it was, because at the time there were some major big domos and promoters that he was dealing with that probably told him and said, Arthur, you're making a huge mistake. You're opening up a big can of worms with the political issues. Uh, don't pick him." And so, so I got whammed again. didn't matter whether I qualified or not. It was just uh, all, all politics.
2: Yeah, and, and and I'm sure at that time the U.S. Davis Cup team. I mean, we had some really good players uh, right in the top top ten uh, who were yeah. probably making it hard for you to begin with.
1: Yeah, no, but you know what was interesting is that I I was told by Arthur, okay, well I'll wait and see what happens with the next tournament, and then I beat I beat the two guys that went into the Davis Cup team in front of me. I beat both of them in that same tournament, so I kind of overqualified, overconfirmed, and yet they wouldn't beat me.
2: That's wonderful. So let's talk about your two big wins. So you had, you won the Australian Open twice in eighty one and eighty two, um, and and it was played on grass back then. Um uh, We wanted to ask you what what made it. Uh, so what was the difference between the grass at in Kewong versus uh, at Wimbledon?
1: Um, the, obviously we play uh, in a much hotter climate in Melbourne. So the two years that I won it, it was extremely hot. And uh, the grass courts were very dry, and it was playing extremely fast. So I was very much in my element because I like fast courts. And so was McEnroe. And so, you know, I did really well. And funny enough, I had to play Steve Denton in the finals, both finals. And uh, the first year I beat him in four sets was much harder. And then the second year I was really uh, on top of it, and I beat him in straight sets. But probably hates you, huh? <laughs> uh, Funny enough, we are very good friends. I just saw him in November. We uh, we got on a ferry to be honored by the uh, ATP for the O2 Arena, uh, owed it to the 80s guys that made it to the Masters Tournament, which I made in singles and doubles. And so uh, I saw Steve Denton on a ferry, and I did an interview with him on my phone. It was hilarious. I mean, I asked his friend out of the blue. I said, listen, man, just let the thing roll. Let's. I'm going to talk to Steve about what happened back 35, 40 years ago. It was so funny. And
0: people absolutely loved the interview because it was completely off the cuff. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's make more of a segue into the early 80s. Uh, Same year, I think uh, you won Australia. You ran into Johnny Mac at Wimbledon quarterfinals, who was probably at the peak of his powers. How were those matches? I know you scored five wins against him. How did you match up against Mac?
1: You know, I
0: actually didn't like to play
1: him, and yet at the same time I liked to play him because uh, he made you play – really the, the the best tennis of your of your capability because you have to deal with all the crap that goes on besides the tennis playing. So it's a test of balls, it's a test of patience, it's a test of not killing him. And so, but we actually have mutual respect for each other. I mean, he obviously didn't become number one because he was a bad tennis player. He became number one because he knew how to handle a racket. So back in those days, you know, um, it was different tennis than they played today. And he was a very much a servant volleyer with amazing hands, amazing court skills, amazing movement. He, uh, he was actually a much better athlete than what people realized and, uh, because he didn't look like an athlete really. But uh, so did Connors didn't look like an athlete much of one, but he was amazing. So, um, you know, I've I, I always enjoyed playing him. Um, unfortunately, he knocked me off twice in the quarterfinals of, the, of Wimbledon when he won it the one year and then he lost in the finals the next year. So, uh, you know, at least I, I lost to somebody that was pretty good. But yeah. uh, I got him back a few times. I beat him in the finals of Memphis, two, literally a few months after I won the Australian Open, and I thought I was playing the best tennis of my career at that time. And so here I played Johnny Mac, number one in the world, in the finals of the United States National Indoor title, and I beat him 6-4 and a third. So I knew that I was, I was there with the big guys. And, uh, you know, but uh, I just... I, I, I had an unbelievable career. I mean, if I, if I have to think where I come from and how I made it, I mean, it's so most so very unlikely.
0: No, absolutely. I mean, fourteen titles, four years in the qualifying for the ATP Tour World Finals, as is known now. I mean, yeah, it is a hell of a career. Uh, so I, let me ask you one more thing about that. You you guys were also part of a very unique era. Like we have a very successful golden era right now. You had many players with major, multiple major titles, uh, like yourself. Then Lendl became. You know, someone who went on to win eight titles, Johnny Mac, Connors, Becker-Edberg were coming up. How was it uh, to share locker room with these guys? Uh, were they like, huge egos? What What is it like compared to the nights, nice, you know, Federer and uh, Nadal?
1: Uh, there was no room big enough for those egos. I mean, <laughs> you know, not even a stadium could fit it. But, uh, yeah, you know, it was – it really, it was an amazing era because, you know, tennis uh, back was played in the 50s and 40s and 60s with wood rackets. And we came along as when tennis was just starting to become very popular, and suddenly you have the super sweet Borg, who is super cool, cold, and never says boo on the court, and then you have Crazy McEnroe, who is the polar opposite of him, and played a completely different type of tennis, and then Jimmy Connors was there a little bit before uh, Johnny Mac, and you had all these other people that came along. I mean, there were so many unbelievably good players, but I think what that era of the 80s, maybe 70s into the 80s, maybe early 90s was an era where, you know, if you were a German, you grew up in Germany and you played German tennis and you came over to the world and you showed them that, you know, I'm better than everybody. But Mm -hmm. nowadays it seems like you got Russian, Germans, and they all come out of Florida. (laughs) It's just funny how that kind of changed, but uh, it was an amazing era. I consider myself extremely lucky because – there were so many vivid players. I mean, the, the Nastasis of the world were still around, playing really great tennis. And you got Vilas, and you got Borg, and Connors, and McEnroe, and and uh, you know, Jose Luis Clerc. You got Gomez from Ecuador. I mean, we were like such a rich history of. And then Vilander and Edberg. Who would have thought a Swede could serve a volley like that after you know Borg and Vilander came along? Suddenly so mm-hmm. comes Edberg, and he knocks everybody off. <laughs> and Boris Becker came in, and you know, super superstar from Germany. And then Steffi Graf at the same time. I mean, it was an amazing era because it made tennis incredibly popular, especially in Europe. And then in 89, when the wall came down and the Russian Federation broke up, uh, you know, you have all these young, very hungry Eastern Europeans coming out, which to this day is basically ruling the roost.
2: Yeah. And, quite, uh, quite interesting to see. You know, I want to piggyback on the ego ego question. I mean, so we have somebody like Nick Kirios today uh, who's getting a lot of flack from the media. Do you do you feel like, uh, I mean, what, what's your take on, uh, you know, how he's being handled right now, considering what we saw of Johnny Mack and the others back in the day?
1: Well, I mean, you know, when Mack first came along, and, you know, I played also in the era where Andre Agassiz came out of the woodwork, you know. So I played against Andre quite a few times. Had some good success against him, also lost to him. But um, you know, you, you tennis. I mean, in any sport, you have good guys, so to speak, good guys, and you got the bad guys, and it's all theater, you know. I mean, it's all it's all show business. So uh, you know, look, I think that Kyrgyz could be an amazing, amazing attraction for the sport, as quote the bad boy of tennis, but. You know, he hasn't really won too much, you know, and that's the big diff. I mean, McEnroe could open his mouth because he had one Grand Slam and he's won major titles, but it's kind of hard to take a guy that has a big mouth and a big ego when he hasn't really done much, you know. And uh, is he, does he have talent? Absolutely. And uh, I just think that he would uh, bring a whole new dimension to tennis with a, a new group of fans. Uh, You know, this sort of punk, funny haircut, you know, kind of cocky attitude, sort of like a modern-day Andre Agassi was. Um, And uh, I think he would be good for tennis. But, I mean, he needs to, you know, he needs to get some people behind him as a team that kind of understand him really well and don't try and put him in a box. But I don't know if those types of people can really have a team because, you know, uh, the, the way that the teams are set up now, if you look at the top guys, it's very simple it looks very complicated, but it really isn't. They took a complicated situation and made it look easy. But a guy like Kyrgyz and a guy like McEnroe, I think he's kind of a lone wolf. You know, he's got to do his own thing. And I don't know if Kyrgyz will have. He's a supremely talented tennis player, but I don't know if uh, if he continues to do what he's doing and tanking and doing things differently. I think uh, he may be just a, he may be a firecracker and go off too early and, and never show back up. Yeah, we,
2: we hope that doesn't happen. Okay, I,
1: I truly hope so. I, I also hope that it doesn't go away because I think he's a he's an interesting guy. I mean, he's super talented. Uh, I just hope that he can find a uh, common ground to be himself, but yet be in the game the right way. He's not in the game the right way right now.
0: Okay, so I have a question, you know, which I want to ask you because uh, we are, you know, the Boris Becker generation that we call in India. We caught fire with tennis with Becker winning Wimbledon. So there's a comment that I've heard so many times on TV and also in articles relating to Becker. I want to hear it from the horse's mouth. So is it true that when he beat you at the uh, Queen's final, you walked after the match and told Jimmy Connors that if this kid can play like this, he's going to win Wimbledon and Connors kind of just gave you the look. How's that story?
1: That was 100% true. <laughs> I, so,
0: uh,
1: I was, I, first of all, I don't really, when I played, I don't really look, well, let me just backtrack a little bit. So 1985, And it was back as banner year, right? In 1984, I'm playing in the South African Open in November, December, something like that. And I'm walking to the tournament and I hear, you know, I lived in Austria at the time, so I speak German. And I hear this guy screaming at the top of his lung at this guy in German saying every cuss word you can imagine in German. And I'm looking and I'm like, who is this punk with the freckled face with the red hair? Okay. Going off at such a young age to some coach, I could hear everything perfectly clear what he was saying. He thought nobody could understand German. So I walked by there, and I'm going, jeez, I, I mean, I can't believe this guy. And it was Gunter Bosch. Gunter Bosch. Boris Becker was like uh, 16 and a half years old or whatever. And uh, they were having a nasty fight about practice on the court. <laughs> so, so I'm like, what a jerk this kid is. You know. Anyway, so forward six months. I'm playing queens, and I really never look forward to who I play. I just, you know, the day before I find out who I play, and I kind of re- recap in my mind what I've done and seen and whatever before or whether i played them before. So th- this this uh, this guy came up to me, and he says, Listen, I'm from the Daily Telegraph or something. I'm just wanting to know, how do you feel playing a German schoolboy? And I go, He's a German schoolboy? How old is he? And he says, He's 17. I go, And he's a German schoolboy? Yeah. And I say, what's his name? He says Boris Becker. And so when I walk on the court, I see this kid that I saw whoops. That I saw six months ago. That uh <laughs> this is the jerk kid that I saw in South Africa.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, I played him pretty tight in the first set, and I think it was like uh six four, six three, or six three, six three, something like that. He beat me. Mm-hmm. And he played out of his mind because I beat a couple of really good players. I think I beat Cash, Mayotte, and another guy from New Zealand, Russell Simpson, who was a really tough professional player.
0: Zivojinovic, Jinovic, right? You beat him too uh, from Yugoslavia?
1: I Jinovic, yeah, big serving guy. And um, and then I played Boris. And, you know, I came off the court and I said to myself, I have never been served off the court like that with a, by a right-hander, ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, I said to myself... I normally am a really good returner. I had no idea where he was serving, and he was serving line after line after line. doesn't matter where he aimed. He hit the line. So he was on fire, and uh, so the newspaper guy came to me afterwards. I'm in a press conference, and uh, and um, I just said, look, I mean, if a guy like that, if he serves like that, he'll win Wimbledon. Mm.
2: sure as heck he did.
0: It is. I mean, that well, yeah. became a projection. <laughs> I I
2: wonder what he would have done with that serve and with the rackets that we have today.
1: Well, I think, uh, you know, I mean, I think that he... Yeah, that's a pretty good uh, subject to discuss about what happened to the serve-and-volley game. And uh, everybody has their theory, oh, everybody hits the ball harder. I think that there's definitely a place for serve-and-volley. I think it's more of an opportunistic issue. It's not a pure serve-and-volley style. But there's no reason why a guy like Isner could not serve in volley 90% of every serve he serves. Because he serves so big, it's so tough to return his serve, that I think if he had greater volley and movement skills, I think he could win a lot more titles, probably be much higher rank.
2: Don't you think the courts at the Australian Open this year, they helped a bit with uh, Misha Zverev? I mean, it was nice to see Federer and Zverev play serve and volley tennis in the quarterfinals.
1: It's totally doable. I just think that, you know, but... This is a really hot subject. I think a lot of, and I'm probably going to get a lot of hate mail for this one, but I just think that, you know, look, it's the same type of mentality that happens when, uh, you know, when Bjorn Borg, when Jimmy Connors first burst on the scene in America. Let's just take Jimmy Connors for for a second. Everybody had to have a T2000 Wilson racket, and those things are lying in mothballs. They never rust. It's a stainless steel thing, and it's still sitting in people's clothes. It's everywhere. So everybody wants to get part of it and wants to be part of it and wants to be part of it. And so when uh, Bohr came along, everybody says, well, you know, I just got a hit from the baseline. Then comes Mackinac. Oh, pff, look at that. You know, he's every, now everybody wants to serve in volley. It's kind of like sheep, you know. And I unfortunately feel like in the modern day, uh, coaches, uh, too much sheep has gone, gone uh, under the bridge here and, and they just follow the trend that it's, uh, you know, it's more this, it's just not that. And I think that the serve and volley really was neglected. And I can understand that the guys hit the ball harder, faster, more dipping than ever before. But I still think that that aspect of a serve and a volley game has to be practiced to be perfected, even if you use it maybe 10 times in a match. But uh, So there's a big thing. And then I think there's guys that match up that you can serve and volley almost virtually every big first serve. So um, so I think it's uh, it's a... It's a it's a part of tennis that has been neglected by sheep coaches in the modern age
2: so so let me ask you this you you have an academy now going and I, I read an interview of yours you said um, you you said that you really the goal is to find the next grand slam champion um, are, are you are you promoting a serve and volley kind of style of tennis with with your recruits well I think
1: uh, yes and let me explain why I think it's not because I want to I'm an old-timer that wants to think that, you, you know, you can race a Ferrari from 1975 against a modern-day Ferrari. I don't think that that's the case at all. But what I do say is that if, you know, if people serve in volley now at the U.S. Open or at the Australian Open, it's almost an anomaly. And people are like, oh, look at that. Isn't that unusual? I'm like, man, did you guys ever see Patrick Rafter or Cash or Edberg or McEnroe or myself, volley, serve in volley, uh, we had to have amazing skills with a racket that had a sweet spot the size of a ping-pong ball, and we could still direct the volley. So I just think it's not being taught enough as a way to play, as an adjunct to your tennis. Uh, and, uh, you know, I look at people trained today. It's just absolutely murdering the ball from the baseline, and the volley skills are just not there. So I teach my kids every single shot in the book. If they have to hit a half volley, they're going to have to learn how to hit it. If they want a swing volley, they're going to have to learn to hit that. So, you know, it makes absolutely no sense to me as a tactic to hit massive ground strokes that puts another person in the corner off the court and you have no volley skills. I mean, that just to me makes zero sense
2: that makes sense and uh, i mean it's it's good to see roger come back a little bit to that style and and as you said he's being opportunistic but it's it's great to see that he's actually playing a lot of servant volley, and maybe that was an influence of uh, having Edberg in his camp uh, a couple of years back
1: well i think uh, absolutely and i think that you know roger ferrer is the ultimate all-court player uh, i don't think we're going to see anybody of his kind of caliber in our lifetime but uh, you know, he's uh, he's an anomaly. And, you know, he's so good and he's got such incredible hands and feel that uh, he can do basically anything he wants to do. If he just wants to grind from the baseline when he was younger, he could do that. But now, if he wants to win, he played exactly the right way. And I think that uh, Lubitsch has done a fantastic job at, I would say, polish off and augment what Paul Anacone did with him, what Stefan Edberg did with him. And I think Lubacic had a big backhand for a big guy from from, uh, from Croatia. And I think he's a very smart tactician. And I think he has looked at the last number of matches where Roger played Nadal and realized that there was the same old, same old, uh, I would say the wave that came that worked on Roger's backhand and just completely buried him later in the match. And then Roger couldn't muster up enough, um, uh, you know, he just didn't believe in that he could hit the ball that hard, and he completely showed us in this final match at the Australian Open this year that if there's a will and there's a belief system that you can actually do it, and he did it. I mean, he he basically beat Nadal with his backhand, which was amazing to me because, as we remember, I mean, Nadal is 23 and 11 head to head, and uh, Federer couldn't touch him the last couple of times they played. And I mean, what Roger did was so amazing. And I I have my theories about why he was so clean about everything he did and why he came back from 3 1 down in a fifth. I think the six months off has done him a world of good because if he had kept playing and he was in somewhat good shape, but say maybe he lost to Roddy, I mean, he lost to Andy Murray in a tournament, he lost to Djokovic twice, or he lost to Nadal twice, three times. That baggage would have still been with him through January. Mm. And I think what happened was that he basically got his computer wiped clean. And he didn't have that added pressure of worry of how good these guys are and just went out and played his own game. And that was a huge morale booster for him. He didn't have baggage in his mind about previous matches so much. He had forgotten about it.
0: I'm so glad that uh, in your explanation you brought up Paul Anacorn because I think for all the Federer coaches, a lot of time, again, all due respect to Edberg, but Anacorn's, I think, uh, contribution gets forgotten. I think he was, in your era, he's a guy who used to chip and charge. He would come in on a return. I think that mindset started with Anakon, and then you're right. It just carried over to full circle with Lubitsch. Can you talk about the Anacon style of tennis back in the 80s, uh, which we don't see at all, chip and char tennis? Well, I knew I, I knew I was in trouble
1: because I heard I was playing somebody in the second round or third round at the uh, at Wimbledon one year, and this, I was playing this guy, Paul Anakon, and I heard he had won the NCAA championships. So, uh, you know, I went in blind. I had no idea who this guy was, never heard of him, never saw him play, and... Uh, he turned – I mean, I served – I always serve first at grass courts, and so I won the toss. And I served a blistering serve down the middle of the box, and he was at the net before I was at the net. <laughs> <laughs> I just looked in disbelief, and I thought, oh, man, this is going to be a long day at the office. And uh, he ended up beating me, and he did very well that year. I think he got to the quarterfinals. Uh, but, yeah, he played with that big racket, and if you had any chance of a second serve, he would chip and charge you, and the ball was low, and he was very quick, and he had – Pretty darn good hands. And uh, he was a fantastic singles player, but he was acted, ended up a better doubles player at the end of the day. But yeah, Paul's a good friend of mine. His brother works in the Hamptons. He's a nice guy, Steve Anacone. And uh, so I know them pretty well. And uh, they're very nice, very nice guys, very smart. And uh, yeah, Paul was a very quiet operator and um, he was a smart guy. But like anything else in any sport or any business, you know, sometimes you need to be shaken up. And it's not that these coaches, are suddenly bad. It's just that the relationship maybe is stale and maybe there's just a, a feeling of, you know, let me step aside because I want this athlete to become more excited maybe or find somebody else to give him a, a better chance. Maybe there's just a talk and just to hear the same message from a different person may make a difference. You know, because at these high levels, these guys play with 0.5% interest and they win. 0.5% less, they lose. That's how it goes.
0: Now, would you be up for coaching if the right offer came along and go back on the tour? I know you have your own academy. Will... Uh, you know, I, I – yes
1: and no. I mean, <laughs> I have a family with a young – I have a young family now. I've got a six-year-old girl and a five-year-old boy. So uh, it's kind of tough But uh, to leave. But I, I would be interested in coaching a very high-level player that uh, I feel like is worth my while because, for me, it's not about money anymore. I just like to, to – uh, to do it the right and do it do it well and it's got a it's got to fit you can't can't put a round peg in a square hole and vice versa so it's really something that has to be a, a convergence of of effort and convergence of spirit and a convergence of ethics and all of those things but I have had some inc- interesting opportunities in the past uh, some that I would put in my book that I keep in my own mind but there's some unbelievable stories about these coaches and what happens with some of these players that are at the very top? I mean, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty hilarious.
2: So, uh, Johan, you're looking at a lot of young kids now, and there seems to be a new generation coming out of the U.S. Uh, do you see any players that are particularly promising that, that you think might be world beaters someday?
1: You know, we've, we've seen, uh, Tiafo came out uh, the last two years. He's a big, strong kid, and, uh, you know, he's got some funkiness about his serve and some of his movement. He's still young. I think he can probably get fitter and stronger and he'll, he could be a, 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 he could be a, a contender. Uh, I don't think Donald Young is, uh, is, is really much of a contender anymore, but he's a good player. Um, you know, Guy Fritz has come along. Uh, I remember his dad because he used to play pro tennis. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, there's, there's always a younger generation coming up and you never know who's going to pop out suddenly. Uh, there's quite a few young gals. I mean, Madison Keys is great. Sloan Stevens. Unfortunately, i think sloan got injured now um but there's a there's a there's a cater of good american players for sure and uh, i think uh, we're going to see over the next 10 or 15 years uh, some americans start to dominate again
2: yeah i mean it's it's interesting that the europeans have really taken over the sport on the men's side but in women's tennis you you still see you there were three americans uh, obviously two of them have been playing for a while but there's three americans in the semifinals of the australian um american. Big contrast uh, between the men's and women's store.
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, the two Williams sisters, uh, in fact, they live here in uh, Palm Beach Gardens. They live in Bell and which I'm literally five minutes away from there. Um, but, uh, you know, they've obviously just been incredible athletes and had uh, amazing, uh, amazing careers. I mean, just beyond belief what they've done, especially I think almost so much on par as Venus because she came from from where she came from with her illnesses and stuff and to to suddenly get to the finals at this age and what what she's endured. And then you have, uh, you know, Serena Williams, which is just a, a complete anomaly uh, physical specimen on the women's side who is extremely strong and has probably the best serve in women's tennis has ever had. And, uh, you know, she continues to win. And I mean, there's no reason why she can't win two more. Uh, maybe not so much the French. I think that's a tough one for her. But I think Serena can definitely win Wimbledon and the U.S. Open as well. But uh, amazing. Pretty amazing.
2: Yeah, I mean, as an American football fan, I'm starting to see some of the top players play all the way up to four, uh, you know the age of 40. And uh, it looks like Serena could do that. Even Roger, maybe.
1: Well, this is amazing. I think Roger could be the next or Ken Rosewell. I mean, he can play at he's forty. <laughs> on it. All
0: right, so we don't have to like be alarmed that this is last Wimbledon. You know, we were well, thinking of planning a trip. <laughs> I'm
1: really, ho- I'm really hoping that Roger doesn't win anything at age forty, because otherwise, I'm gonna. Have, my wife is gonna say, "Get your lazy butt out of bed, go, <laughs> go hit the gym. You are back on tour." <laughs>
2: So, uh, so we're coming to the, uh, pretty much to the end, but we wanted to ask you, what does a multiple Grand Slam winner do 25 years after they retire? You've started the academy. Can you tell us a little bit about what your vision is?
1: Yes, I have a, a tennis academy here, uh, the Johan Creek Tennis Academy here at PGA Resort and Spa in Palm Beach Gardens. Uh, I just signed an agreement with Pen Pro out of uh, Holland and we are going to joint venture on a very large junior tennis tournament in August 13th through the 19th here at Palm Beach gardens. And it's going to be kids from all over the world. It's basically a compass draw. So if you are between the ages of eight and 16, uh, you know, we, it doesn't matter how many enter it's, uh, we, we have so many tennis courts around us here in Isle and some other facilities that we can, we can accommodate a very large group of kids, three to 500 kids playing in a tournament. So, um, I'm very excited about that. But, yeah, I mean, having an academy really is, for me, uh, it's such a blessing because I, I, I have had so much experience in my life. Uh, i made tennis uh, almost entirely by myself, and so I am extremely self-reliant. So I have a tremendous knowledge of the game, and I'm very current. Uh, I've stayed very current all my life. I uh, played almost 24 years professionally. I played 16 years ATP and nine more years on a Champions Tour with Paul Connors, McEnroe. I was number one in singles and doubles. So, you know, I've had a, a very keen understanding of the game for a very long time. And that golden era of playing with four different types of rackets, I think that's why we see so many of my era guys that are coaching top players today. So because we have such a vivid uh, understanding of the game and we can we can change things up, we are a little bit more uh, creative perhaps. So, um, you know, so for me to give back to the, to the game of tennis is uh, – It's not even a job. I mean, for me, it's my life. Tennis has always been my life since I was four years old. I just didn't know it. And uh, I'm still as excited every day to get up and go to do my job at the academy and, uh, you know, see where it all goes. I mean, when I say I'm looking for the next Grand Slam champion, that's kind of like saying you're looking for a Roger Federer. Now, everybody would obviously like to have somebody like that, but, you know, those types of things just happen so rarely, and it's so rarely that you find a rougher uh, but if you, and then you have all these different flavors of people from all over the world. You know, some have been, like Andy Murray was coached by his mom. Jimmy Connors was coached by his mom. You know, Pete Sampras was coached by a dentist. I mean, it's just amazing all these different things that's happened in pro tennis. And uh, for me, it's just, I, I love the sport. I love the history. I love the trivia. I love the craziness. Um, and uh, it's just a, it's a it's a sport of a lifetime, and it teaches kids to be such good citizens. You know, it's a sport that is so uniquely qualified
0: for leadership,
1: and, and teaches you about self reliance and life skills and how to deal with ups and downs. And, you know, because ninety nine percent of the time you're probably going to lose a tournament, you're not going to win it, but you tell you still come back and you think you can win it. So that's what makes tennis so uh, uniquely uh,
2: uh, qualified to be a lifetime sport. Well, that's very inspiring, Uh, Johan. Thanks so much for talking to us.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think this interview is gold for most of our audience, you know, who would just love to listen to your views. Once again, uh, thanks for taking time.
1: Anytime. If you guys want to do something else sometime, just, you know where I am. So I'm happy to do that. And uh, yeah, send me a link so I can uh, promote you guys as well.